Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice. We are today celebrating the release date of the soundtrack of the film Impossible Monsters. The release date is Tuesday, May 26, 2020. Impossible Monsters was written and directed by Nathan Catucci. It had its theatrical release in New York and Los Angeles on Valentine's Day of this year, and the film was released by Gravitas Ventures, on various video-on-demand platforms in North America, United Kingdom, and Australia, and worldwide on Vimeo on March 3, 2020. Impossible Monsters is produced by Dorothea Mathy, Jonathan Burkhart, and Nathan Catucci. As I said, the soundtrack will release on Tuesday, May 26, 2020, available on iTunes, Amazon, and many more platforms, and... Our reasonable voice today is the composer of what I've referred to as one of the brilliant cast members in Impossible Monsters, The Music. Welcome, composer Michael McAllister, to The Reasonable Voices. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Seriously, I've loved your music from the first time I've seen it. I've seen the film six times at least. And oh, wow. uh, Yes. Mike McAllister is a prolific composer, songwriter, and producer based in Brooklyn, New York. One year after arriving in New York City, however, Mike dropped out of jazz school and began writing music for film and TV, which flourished into a career as a staff composer for human music and sound design. By the way, one of the world's top post-production music houses. He worked there and later as a creative director for Butter Music and Sound, scoring countless national and international ad campaigns before going freelance in 2014. Mike McAllister is currently working at Creekside Sound, a production studio he opened in the, and I've got to hear about this, in the slightly polluted uh, Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn. Hello, Mike. Again, how are you? And I'm so glad you're here. Um, yeah, Gowanus, 
I think is known for having the most polluted waterway in New York. I'm not oh. sure if that's New York City only or uh, New York State. Wow. But it's right down the street from me. Oh, gee, that's, uh, you know, and I'm a New Yorker, and I, I don't think I knew that. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, before we, we get into Impossible Monsters, tell us a bit about some of the of your other work, like ESPN and Entertainment Tonight, and, and you've got something coming up with CBS Morning News, or has that happened? I don't really know the details of that one yet. I think, you know, with the situation in the world, I'm not sure how they're rolling that one out. Yes. But, yeah, so, I mean, I've been working, scoring, like, commercials for a long time, done so many, as well as some documentaries, and also some stuff like, like you mentioned, um, I arranged the, like, the current Entertainment Tonight Mm -hmm. theme that's being used, and then... um, the themes for a couple of television shows like ESPN Outside the Lines yes. is one. Another one is like the, the theme for the Paramount Network. Mm-hmm. Some other things like on uh, sort of in that world. Yes. And, you know, and and that's quite an accomplishment. I mean, you've been it's been an ongoing flow. Yes. I mean, tell us about that, because it seems to me from all that you've done, there's been a, a consistency about it. I mean, there, there's been a. Uh, what can I say? Um, you you have gone with the flow, and the flow seems to be flowing toward you and out of you. you <laughs> tell us. Yeah, I try my best just to, you know, take new and interesting projects and hopefully do a good job. I mean, I was very fortunate, I think, you read in my bio about when I moved to New York, you know, kind of struggling and trying to find my way, figure out what I was going to do with my life. I was very lucky to get an internship at Human Music and Sound Design. And so I worked my way up in that company, and the guys who ran that company taught me so much. Mm. Um, I think, you know, without that experience, uh, none of this other stuff would be possible. So, you know, I had some, like, good mentors. And, you know, that's a shout-out for both being an intern and for seeking out the advice of and guidance of mentors so interns and mentors all of you thank you so very much not only for mike mcallister but for all of us who've gone that route how about that viral hit of yours keep lying and and what was it blood on our hands tell us about those oh yeah keep lying is a song um that my wife julie and i wrote with this artist donna missile and, you know, it did very, very well. It kind of launched her career. She's an amazing singer. Mm-hmm. And that was really the first time that I've had, a, like, you know, any experience kind of uh, like having any success in the, like, pop music world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the other song you mentioned, Blood on Her Hands, which is by a band, King David, my friend Ty and John's band, has a song that, we wrote also with my wife Julie, which was used for like the Guinness 50th anniversary ad campaign, or 50th or 250th. I can't remember. It's, mm. It was for like a big anniversary. Yes. Yeah. So well, that's pretty much the story there. Yeah, that's good. And, and how is it two composers living together? <laughs> <laughs> um, it makes a lot of things very convenient when you're uh, isolating, when you work together a lot. You know, it has ups and downs. It's uh, it's interesting to be, yeah, two musicians kind of both in the same career path, mm-hmm. living together, 
but she's an amazing singer mm. and uh, songwriter. So we kind of also complement each other. Sure. Sometimes we don't agree on things, and I think even though that's tough sometimes, I think in the end when we work together, that makes what we come up with better because we have like two different kind of voices. Yes. Yes. I love it. Trying to, trying to find some common ground. So. I, I have a, not quite a, as close a tie, that is artistically, but my wife is quite an artist. She's a painter and printmaker, and I'm a director, actor, and writer, and all that. So we are constantly, nonetheless, although in different disciplines, we, we constantly not only complement one another, but we seek each other's opinion about our work is usually quite insightful, surprisingly so sometimes, I must admit, for me anyway. But this isn't about me, this is about you. So (laughs) TV shows, Shameless, um, Vampire Diaries, uh, Survivor's Remorse, The Magicians, Pretty Little Liars. I mean, you've been busy. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't want to lead anyone to believe that I did any underscore for those shows. Those are just... uh like projects of mine or songs I'd written or songs I'd produced that were used in those shows. Uh-huh. As... Yeah, but that's still a good thing. That's, that's good. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did you and director Nathan Katucci get together for Impossible Monsters? Oh, it was so long ago. I'm not sure I can remember it accurately, but <laughs> I know that uh, we found each other when I had... In the first year, maybe first year and a half that I lived in New York, and I was going to NYU, which I think, as you read, I dropped out of very promptly. Mm-hmm. The one class that I took there that I really enjoyed was the film scoring class. Uh-huh. And one, I, I, I remember being recommended, you know, put up some flyers around, you know, different schools at NYU where like people are making films advertising your services as a composer for people's shorts, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that. Mm-hmm. And Nathan was someone who reached out to me and we clicked um, about like the, the style of music for the short that he was working on, which actually sort of, I think, launched Impossible Monsters because that short was kind of in this, also like featured like a lot about sleep paralysis. Uh-huh, yeah. So I scored that for him, and then our relationship has kind of been ongoing since then. Because Nathan, you know, has been has been like working on the script for this for like a long time and honing it in. And it's his first film, so he had some hurdles, you know, to overcome as far as like getting funding and all that. Yes. Uh, but I was always on board the whole time. Yes. And um, yeah, so it was many, many years in the making, but uh, but it eventually all coalesced exactly so so nate comes to you with a psychological thriller but after you had worked with him uh, scoring his short uh, you probably weren't surprised at all at the nature of the film i mean as i said i've watched impossible monsters many times it's it's not just a psychological thriller although on, on that level especially with your music it certainly hits its target but it's layered with subtext and artistic visuals and, of course, as you mentioned, sleep paralysis. I mean, what of all of that was the hook for you? Was it any one thing or all above? I think the main hook for me was the fact that so much of the film, and maybe this is something that you know a viewer realizes only later on as watching it, but so much of the film 
isn't necessarily reality. Some mm. of it's dreams. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's moments where that's obvious when you see someone wake from it, but mm-hmm. you don't always get that clarity. Yes. And that's sort of when you, when you finish the film and you think back, you have to kind of wonder what you witnessed and, you know, who was dreaming and was it a dream? Was it real? Because a lot of the drama, I think, in the film is about what's going on in people's heads. And, you know, they think they know what's going on or they suspect something. But, you know, it also very much might not be true. That's true. And I think there are at least three layers of that. And I'm not going to give away the third because people need to see this film. But, But as you say, there is a reality that we all can accept uh, as as reality that we might even be experiencing ourselves but there's also the dream state reality and then there's something else going on in the, uh, impossible monsters there's a whole different thing but we'll leave that to the audience to find out for themselves but tell me you know i'm not giving away too much when i ask this question i don't believe what but were you familiar with the goya quote Fantasy abandoned by reason produces impossible monsters. It appears in the opening of the film, as you know. Were you aware of that before uh, composing for Impossible Monsters? And did it, or whenever you became aware of it, did it sort of feed into uh, part of your creativity? Well, I, I wasn't aware of that quotation until I got involved with the film because, mm-hmm. but it, you know, I definitely had seen it. Um, I'd read it like when going through the script and like the very, you know, the first cuts of the film. And it is, it's, like, it's kind of like, I mean, it really kind of summarizes everything about the film because what are these impossible monsters in some ways? Are they, you know, are they like monsters that we kind of dream up or are they, are they part of our reality and something that we have to deal with? And and I think that the part of the thing too, in the film and some of the characters are dealing with this. I sort of read into it. My own interpretation of the film is that the main character is dealing with this as well, though it's never made so obvious Mm -hmm. um, that there's some kind of monsters in his past that, uh, you know, one has to wonder if any of them are real. Yes. I would say the film is has more than its fair share of monsters, and and some we don't. I, I would venture to say maybe some of them we don't recognize at all. But the greatest monsters of all are the monsters we realize we carry around ourselves. I think when you watch this film, but many of the characters are. Uh, I, it's fair to say it's an ensemble piece, outstanding performers, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll speak a little more about them perhaps in the second segment. But this is this is great. Uh, we are talking with the composer of Impossible Monsters score, Michael McAllister. We are talking to him today primarily, not that we wouldn't love to talk to him anytime, but he's an extremely talented composer. But these, his soundtrack of Impossible Monsters is being released on Tuesday, May 26, 2020. So we're going to be right back. We'll take a short break now, and but look on Tuesday, May 26. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, and other platforms as well. Mentioning just a moment here that reminding everyone that this uh, Impossible Monsters was directed by 
and Nathan Cattucci. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Impossible Monsters composer Michael McAllister. And now from the soundtrack of Impossible Monsters, composed by our guest today, Michael McAllister. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, celebrating today the soundtrack of uh, the film Impossible Monsters is being released on Tuesday, May 26, and we are talking with its composer, Michael McAllister, written and directed by Nathan Cattucci. Impossible Monsters had its theatrical release in New York and in Los Angeles on Valentine's Day. I think we did say that. I'd like to mention perhaps some of the cast members that I've not mentioned yet because uh, so many have been on the show, but because they all deserve to be mentioned. That's that's the thing. For instance, um, uh, the star in this ensemble piece is Tony Award winner Santino Fontana, who starred on Broadway's production of Tootsie and Disney's uh, Frozen, Natalie Kemp, Devika Bizet uh, from The Man Who Knew Infinity, great film. Dadal O'Haley, who was quite a re- remarkable guest. He kept me laughing the entire time. Chris Henry Coffey has been on recently. And uh, uh, Jeffrey Owens, marvelous, marvelous actor playing the detective, or one of the detectives. And so it goes on and on. I'm sure I've left out uh, some people. But we, we're talking about both music and film, uh, Impossible Monsters, and that it is, give you a little more details, but it's an ambitious professor uh, becomes caught up in the murder of a participant in his sleep study. Uh, but that's only the beginning, believe me. Uh, as the line between dreams and reality blurs, which was what our composer guest today, Michael McAllister, was alluding to. Michael, I Hi. wonder, yes, here's something I've often wondered because although I'm not old enough, despite what my wife says, I'm not old enough to remember the, you know, the golden days of Hollywood, but I certainly have studied it as a director of theater on camera. Walk us through the 21st century digital age of movie music composition. I know that's quite something, but I mean, I can, in my lifetime, I have sat in many studio with the orchestra in another studio, you know, separated by the soundproof glass and been able to indicate when I needed to stop and make a change or whatever. But but things are different now, and I know they are. Tell us about your experience and how, in the digital age, 
how does the composer compose and how does the actual recording take place? Right. Well, I think it's interesting that you brought up the golden age because I think we tried to capture some of that mm. with the music of this because we were, you know, referencing back to, you know, Hitchcock scores and yes. Bernard Herrmann. And, you know, so that was sort of the palette or at least like a large part of the palette for mm -hmm. the score. But at the same time, we also included a little bit of, I guess like the best term is probably like just sound design, like some like real life sounds are just like heavily manipulated. Mm -hmm. Just kind of as, as like textural like elements in the score. So at times, you know, the, at times the score would have the string quartet that made most of most of the score on top of like the sound of a meditation bowl that's been like dig digitally stretched out to be extremely slow. And, you know, uh, or I think I'd recorded some workers jack hammering mm -hmm. and kind of filtered that out as kind of a rumbling sort of sound that's used in the score as well but i mean as far as the actual like like live music elements of mm -hmm. which is the majority of the score it was done in two sessions one session with piano and percussion and this is at my studio in brooklyn so we we recorded the piano and a percussionist at one time and then brought the strings in and uh, recorded them on top of that and that's that's the majority of the score so very i mean in many ways very traditional mm -hmm. you know i'm limited that we don't have a giant film studio soundstage but we have a really good sounding room here well i and, should uh, say yes yeah. but you do things with strings it's a mastery of text painting and mood setting and i take it this is how you want us or how you see the how you image nightmares the way they nightmares might sound is that fair hmm, is it nightmares it, it's funny because it's almost to me more than anything it's the un it's the sound of the uncertainty of whether of whether it's a dream or not that yes. feeling like am i going to wake up from this or is this all there is that kind of feeling yes and it's that's... like a it's an un, it's most i mean the film it's and the, and the music it's you know a lot of the, the feeling is you know unease and tension mm. and, and and like as we were talking about earlier kind of the idea that this like as you begin to realize something is a dream or as you begin to question whether that thing that you viewed 30 minutes ago was actually a dream. Yes. That kind of uncertainty. I think that's sort of where the score is. Rather than being the sound of a nightmare, it's more of like the, the kind of drone in your head that says, is this real? Yes. And I was hoping you were going to answer like that because that's my, that's my feeling too. It's, it's neither dream nor nightmare, but it's not knowing the difference. Hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. you know, it's the uncertainty, and the uncertainty in the film is everywhere. And so when you add your music to this, and the way Nathan has, has shot it, written it, 
the way he uses the camera and the camera and the music have these three different layers at least where you have little hints of what's real, what is the reality, uh, but I think it's left really up to us to decide which is which. What do you think? <laughs> totally. And I think that's like, you know, in uh, like a kind of generic Hollywood dream sequence, usually by the end of it, someone wakes up startled. And if it wasn't obvious, it was a dream. It is now. And I think in this in this film, certainly you are aware when someone is dreaming sometimes, mm-hmm. but not all the time. And you know, certainly you're kind of wondering if the characters are making decisions based off things in their imagination or things in reality and whether they own the difference between some of them. Absolutely. And, and you know what? That uncertainty, again, not giving away too much, I don't believe, I think that uncertainty goes to the very end of this film. It is relentless. Uh, it oh yeah, without a doubt. Without, okay, good. Yet there is a very different composition in a purposely clear, if you will, scene in the pool hall. Uh, Yes, thank you for knowing I was going there. That music of yours, it really stands out as as very different in style. And I I know there are obvious answers to that, but tell me, tell me what, what you were thinking and why and why this sort of shift or was there no shift and I'm just imagining it? Well, the song that plays during that scene, and obviously we don't want to give anything away exactly. about, about what happens there, but um, it's a song, um, I don't know, can I, can I curse on your show? Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, it's called Motherfucking Heart. Yes. And it's by an artist named Sean Carroll, who's mm-hmm. here in Brooklyn. He's an amazing singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, actually, my wife and I wrote that song with Sean wow. and recorded it. And I think it was around the time that we were wrapping up, putting the finishing touches on the recording of that song, that uh, Nathan came to me with a question about replacing, really replacing this one Rolling Stone song in particular mm-hmm. that he had put, you know, like, you know, as sort of temp music. It had a really good feeling, especially like you're in a pool hall. There was something about that. Mm-hmm music that had the right emotion but it, but it was a departure from the rest of the you know the yes. sound the sound of the movie so but it, it felt good you know it felt like it could be playing at the bar at the pool hall and so I had this song that, that we'd done with Sean and I, I just pitched it to Nathan saying what about this and he <laughs> said it works great and that was kind of the end of the story <laughs> and uh, Sean actually released that song just recently so your listeners should check it out and hear it in full and it also plays during the end credits so yep. stick around for the whole film that's what I say you will be glued to wherever you are sitting when you watch this movie I am not exaggerating I love film of course, and, and of course I love music. I have a degree in music as well. And the score is indeed an integral part. It is it is glued to every scene that Nathan shoots and every scene played by this amazing cast. And I just wonder, what do you do when you're not composing fantastic music? 
I compose bad music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Michael, I have to admit, I didn't see that one coming. That's good. You're quick. I mean, it's not totally untrue, Mm. but I mean, you know, no, like what do I do in, in other aspects of my life oh and any Um, anything you want to talk about and can mention sure um well i have a one and a half year old son ah um he was actually born i'd say maybe a week after i finally finished recording the score for the film oh wow so we were right up against the deadline there (laughs) (laughs) and so spending time with him and uh you know, up until the stay-at-home orders in New York, um, or I guess I guess I wasn't really doing because it, it was the winter at that time. But I'd been um, joining like the community boating mm-hmm. uh, in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Brooklyn Bridge Park, yeah, and going sailing New York Harbor, which was a great way to escape both the city, um, which I often feel like I need to escape, mm. and and also like do something that's not music. Mm-hmm. Um, just be out on the water where it's surprisingly quiet. Yeah, and that's kind of the main thing. I love it. You know, and I, I, I have that feeling too as a writer. When my wife wonders why, when it seems things are really going and going, I will stop and go for a ride in the country. And I said, well, because I have to get away from it. I, and then come back and see if I still love it. Who knows? <laughs> but you know, yeah. there's something... It's very difficult to take breaks. Yes. But I think most of the time I find that they're worth it. Ex- they, exactly. Exactly. So uh, one other instrument I know you mentioned, but I didn't because I was so taken with the strings and, and all that you were doing with them, which was so, for lack of another term, Hitchcock-like, but... There's a relentless uh, piano thing you're doing. You want to tell us a little bit about that without giving away too much? <laughs> um, is this the just sort of like the single note? Yes, goodness. Yeah. It's kind of a reoccurring motif. Yes, yes. Um, just kind of one one repeated note that happens, you know, like very a very like a very forceful stro- like stroke of this note happens mm. like uh on repeat throughout the film Mm -hmm. there actually is a funny story about it tell us which is that um when we were recording the score you know that note happens to be a g Mm -hmm. so every time it happens in the film it's always a g it's always in the same octave Mm -hmm. and um my friend aaron who played the piano in the score he can have a heavy touch on the piano when required Mm -hmm. and uh Pretty much immediately, as we began the session, and he hit like that G very, very forcefully. Mm-hmm. It knocked one of the strings on the piano out of tune. Whoa! Um, it turns out that whoever tuned the piano last hadn't properly set that string. But you can hear it in the score that that note when he hits it really hard, it actually buzzes with a strange sound because one of the strings has kind of become detuned mm. and it was a very like it's a happy accident I mean mm-hmm. at the time we were very frustrated because you know we thought we had this nice tuned piano to record the score and mm. here it is every time he hits a G it's going to be out of tune and we had to we actually had to tape that string so that it wouldn't vibrate when he was playing some of the more soft sensitive moments that, that where it wouldn't make sense to have a detuned note mm-hmm 
But for those moments that you talk about, the relentless piano moments, it added a color to the piano that, I mean, we didn't even plant. Yeah. And um, so I'm sort of glad it happened. I think it was, it was really lucky. We take the miracles wherever they come. Anyway, uh -huh. well, it's been an uh, absolute pleasure talking to you. But let's uh, remind people of, first of all, the Tuesday, uh, May 26th is the release date for Michael McAllister's Impossible Monsters soundtrack. And the website is, of course, www.impossiblemonsters.com, Instagram at Impossible Monsters Movie, Facebook at Impossible Monsters Movie. What would you like us to take away from the film and from your music, Michael, before we go, just from this conversation? What would you like us to know about, to take away? What's the takeaway for us, in your opinion? Hmm. I guess it's like the, the, the questioning of reality, hmm. you know, seems to be very common. These... So I think I just want people to, to enjoy the fact that they're going to wind up at the end of this film having to interpret what they think happened. Hmm. And I think that's kind of more exciting than a, nice buttoned up ending that's exactly and you know talk to your friends about it and figure out what they think happened yeah because i feel like every person who watches it is probably going to have a different opinion exactly and not only that when we figure out or we think we have figured out what's really going on at the end then it makes us think about all that foreshadowing that we may not have noticed that uh, was taking us to that point. And then finally, I think, we what we decide we think happened starts to make us look at ourselves and we discover things about us. As I alluded to earlier, we all have, mm -hmm. we have angels too, but we have monsters uh, that we live with. Anyway, okay. Well, we have to run, but this has been fabulous. I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to speak to the composer of Impossible Monsters, Michael McAllister, who's had quite a career in Brooklyn, New York. I mean, composing, he, he, he's just doing wonderful things. And we wish you all the best, Michael, and your uh, composer wife and your new son and all the other things that you are doing with Nathan and uh, the whole gang, Impossible Monsters, and in your own career, okay? And I should also mention that our guest today, composer Michael McAllister, can be reached at Creekside Sound at 206th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues, Suite 1B in Brooklyn, New York, 11215. Email address info at creeksidesoundbrooklyn.com. And for booking, rentals, and other inquiries, call area code 718 722-9317, extension 14. Thanks so much. Thank you. You take care now. You too. Bye. Bye. And now, from the soundtrack of Impossible Monsters, composed by our guest today, Michael McAllister.
Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Hold on to bits of joy, but not to the past, nor what passed for normal. We and our news media need to get beyond the low-hanging fruit of a politicized, dishonest Trump press conference and wake up to the reality of how bad America was before the Trump administration, how ugly it's become since 16 June 2015, and how desperately we need to heed the humbling lessons of the coronavirus COVID-19. First, delete getting back to normal from our bucket list. Second, remember we've never been completely united. Nonetheless, our exceptional experiment was born despite 20% of us loyalists to a real king. Since 22 November 1963, however, we've increasingly ceded our power to the few who measure human value by income rather than character, even selling fake face masks to the unsuspecting. To rediscover the good in America, we need to let go of pre-COVID-19 and emulate our present professional and family caregivers, first stay-at-home responding governors, artists and the arts beckoning us to a future that recharges our imaginative possibilities and reignites our creative powers to adapt and carry on, without pretending nothing's wrong. We can resist reason with warlike boy toys, or rediscover, if not the balance of United We Stand, then at least the prudence of reopening an America wearing masks to protect others, gloves to protect ourselves, and social distancing that spares all from greater love has no one than to lay down their life for a stranger in need. America has always been about informed choices. For example, Obama Gates 2014 response to Ebola, or Trump's negate reaction to 2019-20 coronavirus, or choose to be embarrassed by waiting in long lines for food, or grateful for the kindness of strangers, choose to stay at home to save the lives of essential workers, or at least love thy neighbor as thyself with humanitarian social distancing. Just because a third of us don't know America's greatness is due in large part to its immigrant culture doesn't excuse our tolerating the obvious bigotry of the world leader geographically closest to us. America's greatness overflows from those courageous enough to learn from our historic mistakes, like the Trail of Tears, and other reaffirmations of the arrogance of nativists and ignorance of denying the catastrophic reality of the ultimate pandemic climate change. Recalling our heritage of stabilizing regional economies through slavery's forced free labor, we might recognize the fruits of its offspring. There are now 573 Native American tribes in America, yet many of America's owner class care less for low-wage earner health because owners work in offices far above and away from the working conditions which embellished their bottom line expeditiously before COVID-19 or its American enabler, Donald Trump. If we are ever to be what we claim we are, we must first realize our goal cannot be to recapture yesterday's normal, but by absorbing COVID-19's true lessons, on 3 November 2020, we can choose continued disarray or graduate honorably from disunity to courageous co-creation on a new canvas of harmonious reason.
New York Republican Representative Peter T. King and most House Democrats voted in favor of the HEROES Act, which Trump and veto ally Mitch McConnell promise DOA. But true heroes zoom, dancing in the streets, serenading soloists, high school musicals. We've become Shakespeare, perhaps sparing eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow someone you touched may die. Neither rewarding Trump's criminal associates with a get-out-of-jail-free card blamed on the coronavirus, while the prison infection rate among black and brown Americans now eclipses the spread of COVID-19 among the general public, nor Peter Navarro's projected sins on the CDC and Homeland Security Secretary Alex Azar's fairy tales can be the back-to-normal-we-seek allowing White House cronies to convince us that sheltering in place is worse for our health than a psychologically damaged and largely ineffective federal executive response to COVID-19 is the root cause of our national mental anguish. We must focus on rebuilding America, not returning to what we settled for before the reality show host was forced to admit the reality of a global pandemic in the home we've temporarily provided him. If conservative Republican leaders weren't bankrolled by dirty money, Dr. Fauci and the CDC would be allowed to exercise our First Amendment privilege of free speech. After all, being informed with all the facts is the best solution for America, economically, ethically, and emotionally. May 11th. I heard my Tattinger's friend, Jerry Stiller, had died. And coincidentally, on that same day, I pre-recorded a radio interview with a friend who has just begun recovering from COVID-19. It's unrealistic to expect most presidents to preserve our union, protect us from World War III, or defend us against the Great Depression and World War. Because, quoting President Kennedy, government is choosing between the bad and worse. Now we the people can choose to legalize GOP gerrymandering or, voting by mail, eliminate forevermore this normal. Time to realize and embrace the best thing we can learn from our past is to graduate from it. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.